What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with and others who served time at other prisons. We're going to be talking about life before prison, life in prison, life out of prison. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you've built up in your own mind. Okay, folks, here we go. Uh, I, I, this, this person that I have on today, uh, I got to tell you, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, the person I have today, Ronald Simpson Bay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. Glad to be here. So I was just talking to, to Ronald before we get started here. His story is something that you you go and you buy a ticket to at a movie theater and you walk out thinking, oh my gosh, how in the world did that happen? How did he survive? And on top of that, I've, I've uh, Ronald was nice enough to send me some information ahead of time. And this is an optimistic guy. This is a guy that's loving life. You were, Ronald, in prison for 27 years. Now, you're, you're, you, were, uh, you won or overturned your conviction in, in 24 years, but it took you another three years to get out. And I want to get into talking about that because I don't think people even understand how that can happen. Exactly. But it's, it, what happened to you within those years is what's so fascinating. And just getting into it, first of all, thank you for being here. This is a great opportunity for a lot of, for a lot of reasons, but just to learn some different pieces of all these things that you did. And it's an inspiring story, but going back to the beginning, can you tell us a little bit, Ronald, about what little Ronald was doing and how you were growing up? Well, I mean, I I lived in a, I was grew, I grew up with two parents. You know, I grew up in a two parent home. My dad was a school teacher. My mom was a homemaker. You know, and this is the sixties and the seventies. And I thought I lived you know a pretty wholesome life. We uh, we we traveled all summer during the summers. We had vacations, and so I I lived um, a pretty well rounded life from that perspective. But internally, you know, there was chaos inside the home because my dad was abusive, and you know, I I grew up thinking that you know, trauma was normal, you know, being, being beaten by your parents. I thought that was a normal thing. It's like, you, you, so you subject to it for so long, it becomes natural. It took me becoming an adult to actually realize I was living in a dysfunctional home. And so, I mean, I was a, I was a great high school student. I was a star athlete in high school. I was a state championship in track and field. I played football and basketball. I got good grades. I went to Eastern Michigan on track scholarship until I broke my ankle and lost a scholarship. And, mm. Ended up coming back to Michigan in seventy, back home in seventy six, seventy seven, and hired into General Motors, and began my life as a young adult. And married my first wife in nineteen seventy seven, and had two children by her. So, when you were growing up, and you had that going, you, you had siblings uh, that were in the house. Did you guys talk about the fact that you know things are kind of crazy, or was it just truly? And I noticed you guys had like a a, a van. Of some size, you guys traveled around in, which that's a great look. I mean, that looks like a great family. You know, the Partridge yeah. family had their own bus. Here you go. 
Exactly, exactly. We it's funny because we started camping in nineteen sixty five and we had a it was just three of us, three three children at the time. I'm the oldest of five children, yeah. three of us in sixty five. We had an Opal Cadet. I, you probably never even heard of it. Real <laughs> it, it's a subcompact. And we had we had a, a rack on the top of it with a tent <laughs> and all the stuff in the trunk. And we traveled around camping and we were the only black people in a campground all over the United States, which was at the time I was a, you know, I was like an eight, ten, eight or nine year old kid, so I didn't I didn't know the difference between black and white, but, and we progressed from that Opal Cadet and the tent, and we bought a van and a trailer, and then we ended up buying a 30-foot motorhome. Wow. <laughs> That's some traveling. Yeah, we did a lot of travel. We traveled all summer, every year. So, um, you know, and following up on when things went to the next step, okay, you get with, with General Motors, and you get a weird phone call one day. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Ronald? Sure, sure. I was at the time I had been working at General Motors for, I hired in GM in 76 after I left Eastern Michigan. And this was in 1984, years later. I was uh, I, I was a journeyman tool and die maker. I, had, I you know, went on GM apprenticeship program and got my journeyman's card as a tool and die maker. And one day I'm at work on second ship and my wife called. At the time, you know, this is before cell phones and all this. Sure. So supervisor called me to the office. Hey, your wife is on the phone. You need to go to the office and talk to her. I went to the office and, you know, and she's telling me, hey, you need to come home right now. She was pregnant with my son at the time. And I'm thinking, you know, something's wrong with pregnant. Are you okay? She said, I'm okay, but you need to come home right now. Something's going on at your parents' house. So I get to the house and she said, you know, that you need to go to your parents' house right now because your, mo- your mom has shot your dad. I'm like, what? So I go to the house and, you know, I get, a, it's about two or three miles away from where I was living, where they lived. And it was pandemonium. You know, the street was blocked off. There were people everywhere. There's fire truck. There's police cars. And I had to literally drive my car on the grass on people's lawns to get up to the house. Wow. And I got there and my mom was sitting in the back of the cruiser, uh, the police cruiser in the driveway. And once I got out of the car and the police identified, they, you know, identified, confirmed that I was the oldest son. They told me what had happened. My mom had shot my dad. And he was inside the house dead. They were just waiting for the coroner to come and pronounce him dead. Were any of the other siblings in the house or is anybody else in the family? Yeah, my there? two youngest siblings. Yeah, I'm the oldest of five children and my, my youngest brother and sister were in the home. They were 10 and 12 at the time. I was like, I was 21 at the time it happened and they were uh, 10 or 12 years old. Ronald, I can't imagine uh, the different thoughts that go through your mind in a situation like that because your first thought is, is oh my God, my dad's dead. And your second thought is, my mom, I've got to worry about the fact that what are they going to do with her? You know, what, what's the right. next step here? Because this actually happened. This is a real situation. There's no getting around it. Your dad died. Your mom uh, killed your dad. And both those things are going on at exactly that same moment. How did you handle all that? I mean, in hindsight, I have no idea. I just dove into it and did what needed to be done. You know, I had to. I dealt with the calamity of, you know, trying to make sure my dad had a proper burial while trying to keep my mom out of prison and while trying to keep my own marriage together, which was on the rocks. And my wife and I were getting ready to get divorced and had two younger siblings. They were like one court hearing away from being put into foster care. I had to confer, I had to, you know, convince the court that I would be able to take care of them and my mom, you know, when, when they released her on bond and it was a jug- it was a juggling. I had I have no idea how I did. I was in school at the time. I was still I was still finishing up my GM apprenticeship program, and there was a lot of moving pieces going. I just did what I had to do. So with your mom, uh, eventually she ended up getting probation for that event. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, by the grace of God, she ended up. We she had a first degree murder uh, charge, but we ended up getting it knocked down to she she got lifetime probation. 
And after five years, we were able to get that knocked down to five-year probation. They signed off and released her totally. Wow. But in the meantime, your life is kind of going into a, a, a like a darker spiral. You, you, you get the pressures of everybody. Uh, home life's not great. You just the, – the whole world feels – Upside down. Am I right about that? Absolutely. My, I mean, it, it, you could, you, my life took a perfect spiral. My trajectory of my life took a perfect spiral from July 25th, 1980, my father was killed. And from that day forward, July 25th, 1986, I walked into prison on the same as the, the anniversary of my father's death. And my life took a perfect spiral. You can see I started, you know, abusing drugs. I started, you know, abusing everything in my life. And I didn't care about anything anymore. And I was and think about me, I've always been an aggressive person. So when you when you mix aggressiveness with with apathy, you know you're not caring. It's like it's a dangerous mix. So I was just lucky I didn't get killed or kill somebody. You know I yeah. ended up in jail and prison. Well, Ronald, you're gonna have to walk me through this next thing that happens in your life because uh, when it first happens, first of all, you're not at that scene of that crime, and when it after it happens, the person that it happened to said it wasn't you. So can you walk me through how in the world this all stepped into your life? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that was such a surreal set of circumstances. Even looking back on it now, you know, all these years later, yeah. 35, 40 years oh, later. it's I'm unbelievable. Back, it's still unbelievable. Like, I had a situation with my, my buddies, and there were three or four of us who were involved in this, in this particular crime, me and three of my co-defendants. We were driving around Flint, Michigan that particular day. I, I was working at General Motors. I was going to work that afternoon, but I, I was running drug houses and stuff. So we were running around collecting money from the you know, spots we sold drugs from. And there's one particular spot we stopped at. The guy wasn't home that I was, you know, to co- go to collect the money. So I talked with his girlfriend and her friends. They were at the house. So me, my buddy and I, we sat there laughing, and talked with them for a few minutes, drank a couple of beers, and we left. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to us, the place is under surveillance. So a couple of blocks away from the from the apartment where they were surveilling, the car st- pull, stopped, pulled us over and stopped us. They were, matter of fact, it was, they were trailing us. And my buddy said, "Looks like somebody following us." I said, "Maybe it's the guy that owes us the money. So let's stop. It's probably him." So we stopped. I get out of the car, lean on the hood of the car, drinking beer. <clears throat> and so as the car pulls up behind us, it's one o'clock in the afternoon, mind broad daylight. Mm-hmm. The car pulls up behind us. I'm like. You guys recognize the guy? It was it was a V twenty eight Camaro, and the guy was in you know a denim jacket, and he had a Jerry curl. We all had Jerry curls. Oh, uh, the Jerry curl, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he gets out of the car and starts. He squats down in the door, pulling a gun. Yeah. And the previous week before that, my buddies now we had been in the shootout with some other drug dealers. So we thinking it's, we thinking it's retaliation. Yeah. So the guy he didn't have a he didn't announce himself. He didn't put a, a light in the car that he was a police officer or anything. So. The shooting starts. I'm standing out in the open. I take off running because, I mean, I didn't want to get hit by the bullets. So I ran away from the scene and jumped over the fence. And the cars took off. They drove. My, my buddies in my car, they took off driving. And the, and the uh, undercover car took off after them. Two or three miles down the road, they run off the road again. There's a second shootout. This is where the officer is struck. He's struck in the arm. Mm-hmm. The people think, oh, he must have been killed. Now, he got he had a flesh wound. It penetrated the jacket of his arm, went through and, and, and scratched his arm. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, it was a serious crime nonetheless, but he wasn't as seriously injured as everybody thought. And so I'm not at the scene of that. So I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't overly concerned to being, you know, being connected to that piece, the shooting piece of it, because I didn't have a gun. I wasn't part of the, either one of the shootings. So right. I thought it was a done deal. And the officer, in his original statement on the day of the event, he said he saw a black man wearing a gray jacket, which was me, standing mm-hmm. outside the car when the shooter started. And I ran and jumped over the fence. That was his, that was his testimony. On the, 
his written statement on the day of the event. Eight months later, at the time of the trial, just before trial, he wrote, he wrote another statement saying, oh, and I jumped over, when Ron jumped over the fence, it looked like he had a gun that was smoking. I'm like, he changed his whole statement up. And, what, and he changed it to fit the prosecutor's theory of the case. And that's kind of how it went. The prosecutor came up with this theory of how he thought the case happened. Mm-hmm. And so he tried to fit all the testimony to fit his theory. Uh, two of my co-defendants turned state's evidence, so they testified on behalf of the prosecutors. So they changed their stories to fit the prosecutor's theory of the case. The, uh, the, the officer who got wounded changed his story to fit the prosecutor's theory of the case. And, and so what happened, the judge had ruled a lot of the stuff inadmissible because everything that happened after I got out of the car, the judge said it was inadmissible at trial. But yet the prosecutor introduced it anyway, and he injected it into the trial 13 times, 13 times, all the stuff that was ruled inadmissible. And every time we object, the judge would still let it in, even though he had ruled it inadmissible. Ronald, so that's basically, I, I got to say that, that this is the type of thing because you know I, I think you know Marvin Cotton Jr. and there, yes. there's there's been some guys at Daryl Woods Senior that've been on here. It, it's um, these are like horrifying stories because this could happen to anybody, you know. Yes. Because if you are around something, or sometimes not even around something, but if it fits. And, and or you get somebody that says, hey, yeah, that guy kind of looks like that guy or whatever the case is, if it fits the narrative of what the prosecutor needs to have to make it work, then all those push, they're just pushed in the, 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 the square peg in the round hole and, and away it goes. Because once yep. once you have that narrative and, and you become part of it because they've plucked you out, it's incredible how fast that momentum goes that you can't catch the edge to hold on. Exactly. Exactly. So you get so into it's this. It's like this the old adage where like a grand jury, a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Well, <laughs> just- here, here's, here's something I think a lot of people don't know. The reason why they say a grand jury can, can indict a ham sandwich, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that a grand jury exists and only one side is presented. There is no defense. There's no defense that goes into a grand jury. It's only presented by the prosecution and the prosecution walks into there and they present their case and they say why they think their case is good. And those people listen and say, huh? Yeah, that sounds pretty bad, but there's nobody defending the person who's being accused. And, and I don't think most people know that that's what the grand jury does. I think that that, People assume that a grand jury is like a jury in a courtroom, that they hear both sides. Everybody gets to hear, you know, and be defended. And, you know, you got the prosecution opening statement. you got the defense opening statement, closing statement. None of that. It's not a trial. It's one right. side. One right. side prosecution says, hey, what do you think of this and this and this? And, lo- hey, look at this. And what's you can't blame the grand jury. They're only given one side of the deal. Right. And there yep. you are. Yeah, but in my case, I actually had a trial. Yeah, but you it, it had a like trial. A grand, it felt like a grand jury because <laughs> the, the jury just, they just agree with everything the prosecutors threw out there. <laughs> so when when you went into that that trial, Ronald, did you did you know already that the, uh, the police officer had tr- changed his testimony? Yes, because a yeah. week before the trial started, my attorney called me in because he had gotten the statements. He called me into his office and said, hey, the, the, the uh, police officer is saying this now. And he wasn't that concerned. He said, we can refute that because we have his original statement where he didn't say any of this stuff. Right. 
And so we, I mean, we we tried to impeach the the, the uh, police officer on his own statement. The jury still bought the change statement. Wow. So the day of when those people walk back in there, what are you thinking, Ronald? I'm thinking I'm I'm thinking I mean this I'm not going to get convicted this because I wasn't there. I mean I didn't I didn't have a gun. I wasn't there, and none none of it pertained to me other than me being there at the initial when it first started. Yeah. And when they came back guilty, I was like I was flabbergasted. I'm like this can't be happening. And then sentencing happened, and what did they sentence you to? Uh, thirty to fifty years. And how old were you at the time? Twenty-seven. Wow. Wow. So uh, you go to a maximum security prison. Yep. Uh, walk me through the gates of that day. Oh man, I mean, walking through the first day of prison is like it's it's, it's like nothing. It's like it's it's unbelievable. When you know it was in the middle, it's July twenty fifth, nineteen uh, nineteen ninety eighty six. It's hot as heck. They put me and like four other guys in the back of a. It was a it was a converted truck, like a dog catcher truck. They put us in the back of the sweltering hot truck, no air, no ventilation, other than you know the little holes, and and transport us an uh, hour and a half down ninety miles to Jackson Penitentiary. And when we get out, they herd us into this uh, holding area with you know forty fifty other guys. Hot as hell, everybody's sweating, you no know, hot smelly man. And you know, you gotta go through the shower procedure, get deloused, and you get photographed and go through all this fingerprinting and what have you. And at Jackson they have a they call it the slide. It's when you when you get through getting processed, this huge red door slides. It's not like the gates of hell slides over. It goes clang and you walk through that door and you go down this deep incline into the quarantine area. And as you walking down the slide, it closes behind you. And clang, and he's like, "It's it's bone jarring." I, re- I mean, to even hearing it, repeating it right now, it gives you some I PTSD. Feel <laughs> I'm feeling chills right now just repeating it because I'm thinking I'm reliving it. Yeah. And then you walk into the quarantine area, and it's like 400 guys screaming and hollering, throwing paper and trash out onto the floor from the galleries, and it was just pandemonium. And and you walk into that madness. He's like, "Man, how in the hell am I going to survive this?" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you did you know anybody, or were you totally just uh, Ronald on your own? I knew people because I, I mean I I live I was living a Doctor Jekyll Mister Hyde like Doctor Jekyll Mister yeah Doctor Mister Hyde I was living two lives on the street so I knew people from the street when I got to prison I knew people yeah and and I was twenty seven years old so I was older than the average you know, person going to prison most people go to prison eighteen nineteen twenty yeah. twenty two when I got in twenty seven. I'm almost like an elder station. They, they called me old school. <laughs> I was old. I was 47. They, I was OG. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were really old. Yeah. Man. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Was, so you know what I'm talking I about. I do know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are younger. So you get in there and you, and you describe Ronald that, you know, you do your time in layers and yeah. th- those first few years, you're angry. Oh man. Yes. I always describe, I tell people when I, do pub, when I do public speaking that you do time in phases. Um, my first five years, I was angry because I knew I was in the, I was wrong. I knew I was in the wrongfully. Um, I was, you know, I was still in that street mentality. So I was certainly part of the problem in prison and not part of the solution. You know, I was part of, you know, running drugs and fights and stabbings. I mean, everything negative. I had my hand in it. Yeah. And one day I read a book. A friend of mine brought me a book, a, a woman I worked with at General Motors brought a book to me in 1990, I'll never forget it, called Visions for Black Men. 
And it's a 90-page paperback by a professor from uh, Florida State and Dr. Naeem Akbar. And it's a beautiful, short, powerful book. The first 21 pages talks about the transformation from male to boy to man. And I read that, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Because one thing about me, I hate being a hypocrite about mm-hmm. anything in my life. I'm going to be a fool, I'm going to be a damn fool. If I'm going to be uh, good, I'm going to be very good. Mm-hmm. So I read this book, and I've always holding myself out to be the, a man. I, by 1990, you know, I'm, in my, I'm about 32, 33 years old. I'm a man. I'm thinking, I read this book. I said, oh, man, I, I'm barely functioning at the level <laughs> of boy. I felt, I felt, I felt punk. Yeah. So I said, I, I got to change my life. I got to do something different because I'm nowhere near being a man. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a detriment to my community. So I wanted, I wanted, to, I wanted to convert myself from being a detriment to become a, I mean, to become a uh, asset to the community. So it really happened by just re, by taking that book that ninety pages. You 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 revealed your life and said, "Hey, I'm not there. I gotta I gotta yep. do a lot of things different." And and it started there. Yeah. Wow. And it's funny because it, the book came at the right time because at that five years that five years uh, mark, yeah. I was tired of I was <laughs> tired of the life I was living. Yeah, I was tired of being on the yard. I was tired of fighting and running around doing all the foolish stuff. On I was just tired of that because I knew I could do better. Yeah. Because I, I went to I went to prison with a college education. Ninety percent of people in Michigan in prison didn't have even a high school education at the time I went in. So right. I knew I could do better. So when I read that book came at the right time. I was at the time I was tired of being a fool and I wanted to change. And that book gave me reason and and, and a direction in which to change. What did you start doing, Ronald? I became an advocate. I start I start I start studying the law. I became, I got elected to the, what called in Michigan prison, they have a pro- program called the Warden's Forum. And it's, uh, it's a group of guys that's elected by the, the people, the population to represent them with the issues to the warden. Once We can meet once a month and discuss whatever issues going on in the prison. Mm-hmm. So I got elected to, to represent the population as one of the representatives. And I ended up becoming the chairman of the Warden Forum for a number of years. And, and it just built my advocacy. I felt like, I felt like, you know, I, I dove into helping everybody else and stop worrying about helping me. I said, I- I'm here till I'm here. I'm just going to fight my case, and I'm going to try to help as many people as I can. And that's went in that direction. So really, when you started reaching out and helping people, that helped you and your time. Man, and well, I mean, the thing, when I when I stopped focusing on me and focusing on helping, other, helping others, things happened that I never even could have dreamed happened. You know, people came into my life to assist me that I never even thought would show up as like, the gates opened up. I said, man, this is, this is different. You know, I had a friend of mine that was, uh, was a Genesee County commissioner and they, and they helped, they helped me secure some documents. I had been trying to get to help litigate my case and other people stepped in and helped with, uh, doing community advocacy, getting those signature letters, people writing letters on my behalf. One person had a a signature campaign. They secured 5,000 signatures in support of my release and these type of things. So, when I stop focusing on me, all these other things start happening on my behalf. So, and at the t- at the same time, Ronalds, you've got um, you've got your kids out there, and 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 of course your mom and and your other siblings. What what was all that like? Did it work? Did he get visits? Did did they in your life? How how did how did things progress with your family? I mean, that's just where my, my, my children, at the time, my first, I was married to my second wife at the time, and she was real diligent about bringing my children. Even my, I had one child. My youngest child was about her, but she would she would bring all four of my children. She would go pick the other ones up and bring them at least once a month to come see me. And so that went, that went off like the first nine years of my incarceration. But 
even it was it was strange relationship. I mean, I kept as close as to as I could, even under those conditions. But as time went on, you know, the relationship became more distant, became more strained. It's a matter of you know, out of sight, out of mind. You know, people people think you're never coming home because everybody was saying, well. If you come home, my mom and I, we always had a conversation. She said, well, Ronnie, if you come home, and I would admonish her, it's not mom, it's not if I come home, it's when I come home. Yeah. Because I know I'm coming home because I'm innocent of this crime. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, everybody in prison said they're innocent, so nobody really believes you're innocent. Like, yeah, wink, wink, you know, you're innocent. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's a professional athlete. Everybody's a millionaire. Everybody's innocent. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you, 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 you know how it goes. Everybody, everybody on the yard is innocent. <laughs> And you profess your innocence is like, yeah, right. Yeah, wink. right. And and you really were. That's did it yeah. see did it seem did you feel I mean, I can't imagine with that amount of time that you were given, basically fifty years, and you knew because it was obvious that you didn't do this and you were living your life in a prison, maximum security prison, and having to live it knowing you were innocent. Absolutely. And prison is no cakewalk, trust no. me. I mean, it's like, I mean, you you can get killed at a, at a moment. You have to be totally aware of your surroundings, even in your sleep. Mm-hmm. Because things happen, it's like, it's like you, you walk in a tightrope. It's more... People think it's dangerous on the street, and it is. But in prison, it's, it's, it's a microcosm of what goes on in the street because everybody that's in prison, 90% of them, are, you know, they were troublemakers on the street. So it's like you're dealing with that type of mentality every day. And add on top of that, the mental health factor. You know, a lot of people have mental health issues in prison. You never know when somebody's going to snap, even if they don't have mental issues. Prison, prison creates mental health issues. So people get bad news from home, and all of a sudden they say they give up. Now, they, you know, they want to stab everybody. They'll jump off the gallery or, you know, you be in the way and you be standing from in the line. They just decide they want to stab you because you're standing there. The hard time. So you, well, you it, have to navigate that. No, I, I, it's, it's you, you, and you walk around looking and making sure that you know everything that's going on. And it, and it is like a boiling pot. Everybody's on their heightened tenseness anyway, because it, it's, it's yes. not great. And anything that could be a, uh, I, I remember we got in a fight one time over uh, country music, and it was like, how the <laughs> hell did that happen? That would that was such a st- – why in the hell did that even – what happened? But Exactly. You also – I mean, did you did you spend time in the hole and all that too, Ron, when, yeah, you, yeah. when you were spent, going through I all spent, that? I spent – out of the 27 years I was in prison, I spent like a total of three years in, in the hole. I spent the longest stretch was about 18 months. It's a long time. 18 months. Six months, three months, that kind of, I spent like a total of three years. And uh, for those who don't know, I mean, usually the holes at 23 hours in and one hour out, is that kind of what you were, and you've, that's exactly you get what to it shower was. maybe three times a week. And, three times yeah. a week, yep. Maybe. People yelling and screaming yep. all through the night, like, like some kind of weird planet that you're not from. Exactly. I mean, I had I had stress headaches and didn't even realize why I was having headaches. And when I saw health healthcare, and so you just stressed out from all the noise and stuff. I said, "Am I having these migraines? These crazy headaches?" And I'm laying just laying in the cell. And it was like from the banging and screaming, like I say, all night because in in solitary, you know, 
people sleep during the day and then they're up all night screaming and hollering and you trying to sleep at night. So it's like, it's just, it's a lose, lose situation. Yeah. I never really understood the whole screaming thing. I went, I remember I was, had to, I was shipped up to uh, Warren County jail in Missouri and it was a jail and it was like immediately when the, the the doors slammed shut, they all started screaming. And I was like, I don't understand what we're doing here. This is, this is, doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. No rhyme or reason. Doesn't make any sense. So, Ronald, you okay? You're in prison, and bad news in prison feels like the most suffocating type of news because you're in locked in. You don't feel like you have control of what's going on on the outside, and you receive the worst news in prison. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. If I never forget Father's Day, two thousand and one, I was uh, sitting in prison in Lapeer, Michigan. Uh, waiting for my children. I talked to my old my son that morning. I said I have four children, my son and three daughters. And I talked to him that morning. Hey, Dad, I'm going to pick the girls up, and we're going to come visit you this afternoon. And you know, in prison, visiting from your children is like the best thing oh, ever. Best. Like, man, it's like I thought, oh, fantastic, great! I get to see my children. So you know, you go through the routine. You go shower. Yeah. You lay on your bunk. You don't want to get sweaty. You just <laughs> sitting there waiting. You know, the, the time the clock is ticking by. You know, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. Nobody shows up. I'm like, what's going on? So I start call, making phone calls all around you know, the city of Flint. I called my, my, my ex-wife and didn't find her. Called my children, couldn't find them. Called my mom, couldn't find her. Of all people, I called my ex-mother-in-law. Say, hey, Mom, have you seen the kids? They're supposed to come visit. And she was like, you haven't heard? I said, no, what's going on? Little Ronnie been shot and killed. I said, you're kidding. She said, no, everybody's out of the hospital. And you know they, they're making arrangements now to, to, for his body. I'm like, are you kidding? On Father's Day 2001, I get news that my only son has been shot and killed by a 14-year-old juvenile in Flint, Michigan. Gosh. I can't even begin to say, you know, the feeling. I can't, I can't even process the feeling now, even if it's been, you know, 21 years later. It's still confusing. I still, you know, tear up about it. Like, I don't understand it, but it's one of those things that happen. You know, you know things happen in, re- in life for a reason, even though you don't always understand the reason. And for me, this is one of those uh, situations. I just can't imagine, Ronald. And uh, how old was he at the time? He was twenty-one. Twenty-one. And his and his and his girlfriend was pregnant with his son. His son was born two months after he, well, a month and a half after he died. My son died on uh, on Father's Day, two thousand one. His son was born August first, two thousand one. So as this as this progresses, uh, this is a uh, uh, the the boy that killed your your son was a juvenile, and can you? Kind of walk me through your thought process of how this all came about, of how they were going to prosecute him, uh, and how you advocated for something else to happen. Sure, in Michigan at the time, and even now, Michigan has a uh, for uh, juveniles that commit murder, and if you found if they're found guilty, they sentence to life without the possibility of parole. And I saw, I did not, I didn't wish. For, I didn't wish prison on my worst enemy. I did absolutely not. I didn't wish prison on the guys that testified against me because prison is such a horrible experience. And for a 14 year old kid who had the rest of his life in front of him to be sent to life, adult prison to me served no useful purpose. It wasn't going to bring my son back. It wasn't going to do anything, but you know, further road, I consider road the fabric of our society because another young man is going to jail for the rest of his life and not have a chance. So I advocated for this child to be given a second chance. I advocated for him to be treated as a juvenile and I tried as an adult because they try them as adults when they can, when they commit murder in Michigan. 
And it took some finagling because the prosecutor wanted to try him as an adult. And they weren't, you know, they didn't consider me as a victim. I wasn't a traditional victim. I'm black and I'm in prison and I'm advocating for, you know, as a, as a family member of, a, of a, my son who as was your murdered. your son, yeah. Yeah, so they, they were ignoring me till I, I pushed the campaign and I ended up getting, you know, the, the court kind of agreed and the prosecutor changed their mind and ended up charging him as a, trying him as a juvenile. I had to convince my ex-wife, you know, my son's mother to go along because at first, you know, she, you know, mother's reacting that she thought the kids should get life in prison. Sure. She had, she wanted no part of advocating on his behalf. And I had to tell her, I said, look, you profess to be the mother of a church and, you know, well, what would Jesus do since you're so religious? Mm-hmm. And it made her think, you know, it took a number of visits for her coming back and forth, us having this conversation. And she finally acquiesced and said, okay, I, I won't, I won't object to him being tried as an as a juvenile. And so it happened. Wow. How did you, Ronald, in that type of situation, were you, were you numb? How, how do you, when you find out your son dies in prison, when you're in prison, how, how, what kind of strategies do you use to step through that? Well, I mean, for me, I, by that time, I had, I had my life, had, I had changed my lips in 2001 by now. Mm-hmm. And I had you know, 10, 10 years of changing my life direction. And I was like, I used to be the guy that people come to for counseling in prison when they get bad news from home. And yeah. like, I, like, I, like I told you earlier, I hate to be a hypocrite. So I had to apply my own you know, strategy to myself, things I tell other people they should do in these times. I could not do it myself. I'd be a hypocrite. So I practice the same thing that I preach. I, I forgave the child. I practiced forgiveness. I, I was the head of a religious organization at the time. So I understood second chances and redemption. And a 14-year-old kid certainly deserves a second chance and deserves redemption and not to be judged by the worst decision that he made in his young 14-year-old life. So and for me, it wasn't it, after two or three weeks after the numbness wore off, and I kind of like, man, I got to do something to help this kid, and not not woe was me. I was able to I was able to make that transition, actually, you know, advocate and help the child, which I guess probably helped you get through that grief, maybe because you were it busying did. yourself into advocating for him. And from what I understand by reading some of the things that you'd sent me, he uh, that young man ended up six or seven years. Uh, and then came out and, and is doing pretty well in society. Yeah. He, uh, he went to prison at four, he went to jail at 14 and yeah. at 20, at 21, they reviewed his sentence Cause he was able, if he hadn't, if he hadn't approved, improved enough by the time he turned 21, they could, you know, actually charge him as an adult and continue his mm-hmm. sentence on. But he had made enough progress during that time. I had kept some touch with him over the years and written him letters, you know, remind him of his responsibility and what have you. So at, at seven, at 21, in, in 2008 or 2009, when they released him, and he went, he, I mean, he hasn't gone back to prison or jail or anything. I yeah. mean, he, he's not, he hasn't been elected president, but, you know. <laughs> well, but, the, yeah. but strangely enough, you had the connection between the fact that the, he's the brother of your, your son's, uh, the, uh, the mother. Girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Yeah, he's uh, he's uh, he's my he's my he'd be, the ne- he'd be the uncle of of your son's uncle of my grandson. Oh, wow, yeah, it, it, isn't that confusing? It really is. I mean, it's yeah. really something that yeah, that's yeah, he's all my, tied he's, in like my that. son's girlfriend's brother, who is end up being the uncle of my grandson. And how is your grandson? Is he good? He's struggling. He, he's he's in prison right now. He's struggling. He's struggling. He's struggling. He's struggling. He he just turned twenty one uh, a couple weeks a week or so ago, and yeah. he's in prison right now. He he called me earlier today, and you know he just 
He just, I mean, he just, he's just struggling. I try yeah, to, you know, I, over the years, I've kept a lot, of, I kept close contact with him when I came home and spent time with him and, you know, gave him, imparted everything I could to teach him, you know, to stay on the right path. And, and he just, you know, he's just doing what he's doing. And he, I mean, he's surviving. He's not, he's not, no, he ain't going for a serious crime. He's supposed to get out in October, but he's just, he just can't get right. He's, he's yeah. struggling with you know, maneuvering this whole process of life. Yeah. Well, so your, your life, as you're helping with this paralegal and you're getting learning the, the legal system, you're advocating for others, you're advocating for yourself. When do things start turning for you, Ronald, when you start thinking, Hey, I might have a shot here. I, you know, you're, you've been in for a long time, but th- things legally had to have started giving some type of light at the end of the tunnel. When did that happen for you? Well, for me, uh, I, I, always, you know, I always maintain my innocence, of course. And, I, I was I was savvy enough to keep my case alive because in the mid nineties they they passed this federal the, the, the nineteen ninety four crime yeah, bill yeah big that crime they bill passed. and the crime bill out of that it came of uh it came uh some act uh, anti terrorism death penalty act and what that did and which is so crazy I don't know how they connected appeals to the death penalty and terrorism but it limited your time to get in court so after nineteen ninety six if you didn't have your case in federal court within one year. You lost all rights to appeal it. Wow! Unless unless you fit into a, a, a minimal, they had an exception, and I, I worked that exception to death. I kept filing stuff every time the, the, the time limit would get ready to run out. I filed something just to keep it live, and I was able to get the courts to actually look at my case. But, but what helped me was in '93. I mean, in 2003, the trial court, I had filed a motion for relief from judgment. And the court thought I should get some. I had a new judge at the time. My old judge, since the judge had retired, the new judge thought I should get some relief. He didn't think he had jurisdiction to do it. So he wrote a 30-page opinion outlining why I should get relief. And that's what I based my habeas corpus petition on. And the federal courts read it and looked at it, and they agreed. And wow. so I got some action. So then you, in what's it, uh, on your 24th year, you get your conviction overturned. And, and there's a lot that goes on in the, in the courtroom with this whole thing. I guess that's towards the, that's the year 27. You have to go three more years. Yes. Tell, tell me about the day that you find out that you get it overturned though. I, I get called up to the control center to get legal mail. You know, I, you know, you yeah. legal mail, Ron goes get it. So I go to control center. I get lots of legal mail. Cause I'm involved in lots of litigation. So I didn't think anything about it. I go get it. I look at it and I said, okay, what's this from, from the federal courts. I'm just thinking is if they could deny something or just it's an extension, but the prosecutor requested, I open it. And it said, I, I went down to the bottom to the dark print and said, we grant the petition. We grant petitioners maybe his corpus and reverse and remand his sentence. I'm like, what? Oh my God. I like, it was like, it was like, it was like, as a numb as when I got convicted. I, uh. I walked back, I was walking back to the cell. I put the letter, letter back in the envelope <laughs> thinking, thinking I misread it. So I walked back to the, my cell and I sat down. I took a deep breath and I pulled it out again. And I, and this time I read the whole, the whole page. I said, Oh my God, they overturned my conviction. That was in 2009, year 24. Oh my God. So I was like, here we go. So from there it's like, but the crazy part about what you mentioned, I couldn't get out for three more years. The, the, the prosecutor, the state appealed my reversal. And so the federal courts held it. They, they, they held my um, reversal, my release in abeyance until, you know, another time. So, which was crazy, because now I'm back at pretrial status. I'm filing motions to release pretrial release. Yeah. I'm filing motions to every court, and no court would take responsibility. 
The court that reversed it said they didn't have jurisdiction because the appellate court had it. The appellate court said the, the, the trial court had jurisdiction on bail, and the trial court said we don't have it until they send it back to us. So I went, for three they years, I went back you to all court. around. See, I don't they think people understand. Around, but, I don't think people understand that that can happen where, where you yes. get lost in the system, even though yes. you've got the right judgment. Uh, you can't find your way out because they do everything they can to keep you. Uh, yes. It, it, sometimes it can take years, which in your case it did, three more years. Uh, but then when you got there, that trial judge, I guess it was the trial judge. I don't know if it was a judge. Yeah. He had to actually work overtime to, to make it work because they were being so hard on you. Yeah, he, want, he wanted to – He the judge, when I went back – uh, for the for the re, for the hearing the release for the hearing for me to be to retry the release the judge said and the prosecutor said we not we don't want to retry him because the case had been gutted the federal court said this is inadmissible you can't use mm-hmm. this they they laid down hard lines what could and couldn't be used so they didn't have a case and so they were said they were fine with re- releasing me and the judge said well I'm gonna let him go home for court today but the Department of Corrections officer said well we have orders to bring him back to the prison no matter what happens. <laughs> God. And the judge was like, you I mean, you're kidding me. I'm the judge. I'm releasing him from right now. And they said, no, we got to take him back. So the judge said, wait a minute. He adjourned. He went back and called Central Law, called the Department of Corrections. Hey, I want to let this guy go right now because, you know, his, his conviction, his time is done. They said, no, we got we to gotta recalculate his time, make sure he serves it all. And the judge was like, you're kidding. So the judge came back on the record. He was beat red. He was livid. I mean, he, he almost said cuss words on the stand. He was so hot. He said, I'm resentencing Mr. Simpson to uh, I think it was something 15, and my maximum was like 15 years, 10 to 15 he resents me to. And so I was like 12 years past my maximum out date to make sure that they had to let me go when I got back to the prison. No, There was no calculation in the world that could keep me. So that was even crazy because the department, they were mad at me because of my litigation activities during prison. Sure, right. <laughs> you were that guy. Yeah, exactly. I, I sued them. But I, sued, I sued and I wanted me and my buddy sued the state on a property lawsuit and won, so. Well, and it took 18 years for that, so they, they were mad about that. Well, tell me about getting walking out of there after 27 years. Man, 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 man. I felt like when when, when, when my, my family come and picked me up from the prison I was released from in that afternoon, I was in tears because I was at a minimum security at this time. And so as, as we driving away, minimum security out front, and all the guys were along the fence. It's like one of those prison movies where you oh, see the, the – the protagonist, he's he's going home and everybody's waving at home. And <laughs> these guys, I had done twenty seven years, but these guys are closer to my own family, man. Yeah. I was I was I was crying. Yeah, yeah. I was literally well because they were your family. You've been there for twenty seven. Yeah, years. they were my family. They were my family. Oh man, you know, and I, I think I think back on that, and I didn't do anything close to the time that you did. I I, I was sentenced to five years and did three years, and but. I do remember, though, Ronald, that time I was so excited to walk out the door, but I also had a guy that I was leaving that I was so close to. We did everything together, walked together, ate together, everything, watched movies together, all this stuff. And it's almost like you're kind of leaving somebody on the battlefield when you're getting to go home. You know, it's it's just that, that, but you, for everything in the world, you want to walk this way, but you feel bad for that person. But yeah, I, you feel a deep sense of abandonment. You do. Like you abandon. It's a abandon weird your thing. Com- yeah, your comrade on the field. You bet. You abandoning him. Yeah, it's a weird feeling. But boy, when you walk through that door and you feel that sense of freedom back, there's nothing like it, right? Yeah, it's, it's unnerving. It's like, ooh, am I? 
you feel nervous walking out the front door. And not, you're not in, you're not in belly chains and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and shackles. It's hard to so look cool in shackles. Like, okay, where, where's the, where's the guards to come <laughs> take me back in? That's what you're looking for. Let's yeah. get out of here. Looking over your shoulder. You got to jump in that car fast. Yes, sir. Well, it, it, I think I've heard you say this. You've said this too. You said it felt like it was Fred Flintstone meeting the Jetsons. Yes. Yeah, yeah. When I got home, I felt, I felt like Fred Flintstone on the set of the Jetsons. Nothing was familiar. Like when I went to prison in 85, microwaves were like the most high-tech appliance in the home. And at that time, they were still an overpriced, underpowered piece of crap. It, it cost like 500 bucks and take like 10 minutes to boil a cup of water. Exactly. So, then when I came home, you know, the cars were talking to each other, keyless entry, and they had the internet, cell phones, laptop computers. None of the stuff was in existence when I went to prison. So I was like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> That's just crazy. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, I just, all the different things you think of that changed. I mean, because, you know, you look at, uh, you know, phones. I mean, I guess there were car phones in the 90s, but, you know, people carrying around phones, uh, that all happened while you were in there. And, and the internet, yeah, all, were, the internet car, happened while you were in there. There were no car phones in the 80s. <laughs> That's right. They, they, had, they, had, they did have a portable phone. It was like the size of a, a, uh-huh. a carry-on suitcase <laughs> exactly. that you carry on this airport. <laughs> <laughs> that, and only, you know, only a handful of people had them because they were so doggone expensive. So what, and, and pages. So yeah, yeah, what, it was it was a totally different world. What was life like for you getting back into society? It was. I mean, it, it was it was interesting. It was um, a study in contrast. I mean, I was so excited to be back, but it was it was anxious and depressing at the same time because it was like sensory over. You you live in a twenty seven years of sensory deprivation, and you drop back into a world that is hyper stimulated. So it's sensory overload. You know, I, three days after, three or four days after I was home, I never forget. Um, I got my mom's cock. I, was, I went and stayed with her when I first got out. And I said, hey, Mom, I'm going to the grocery store to get some breakfast food. You want some? She said, yeah, bring me back a box of shredded wheat. <laughs> you know, I went, when I went to prison, shredded wheat was a, a big four-inch biscuit. So, you know, I, what's hard about that? I get to the cereal aisle. There's like three rolls of shredded wheat. Like 10, 10, I mean, it was crazy. I, I stood there looking at all the different boxes. And I didn't realize 30 minutes later, I'm still looking at the box of shredded wheat. And I looked, damn, look, 30 minutes. It, it, it was overwhelming. Overload. I just grabbed yeah. the box and walked out the store. I said, I got, I got to go. And uh-huh. then people were coming to visit. A lot of people come by my mom's, my mom's to visit. They heard I was home. It became so overwhelming that I just left one day and went to a friend. Didn't tell anybody where I was going because I wanted to unplug. I couldn't deal with, you know, the mm-hmm. chaos of people coming in and out. Because I'm in prison. You know, I didn't like that kind of confusion. I tried to stay away from it. So. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was real. It was, it was a challenge. So when, when you, uh, cause you stepped in and started doing some, some great work. How did, how did you get all connected with that, Ronald? What was your, how did you step into the work that you're, what you're at now? But how, was it difficult to get to the, where you are? What, what all happened? No, really, it was kind of a, I was an advocate while I was inside 27, 25 or 27 years. I was inside. I was, I was an advocate advocating for, myself and other people and mm-hmm. changing the conditions of confinement inside prison. So it was kind of a natural progression. When I got out, I had so many years invested in, I said, well, I'm not going back to general motors. So I, <laughs> I invested in myself and trying to get in a job that would, you know, would be, I could use the, the skills that I had uh, developed while I was in prison. So I got hired by an organization called American friends service committee, which is a, an international organization that, do, that does justice work. And they hired me as a program associate and I developed some programs with them in 2015, 2014. I was speaking at an event at the University of Michigan and 
the founder of Just Leadership USA, Glenn Martin, was the keynote speaker, and I was on a panel. And he came to me afterwards, hey, I'm launching this leadership program. You'd be a perfect candidate for us. You know, you want to get in. So he gave me all the information. I applied for it. And about six months later, I get accepted. In 2015, I was in the first leadership development cohort that Just Leadership had. And I loved it so much. I said, this would be my dream job. In 2016, I graduated at the end of 2015. January 2016, he made me a job offer. I was one of the first five people hired by the organization. And I've been there ever since. I'm the longest serving team member on the team. Well, you're executive vice president now. I mean, yeah, it's, second in command now. Uh, I mean, yeah, just okay. leadership USA. Uh, yes. Can you tell the listeners kind of what that what that organization does? Yes, we are the only national criminal justice reform organization that was founded by and operated by directly impacted people, people that have been directly impacted by the criminal legal system. And we do uh, criminal justice reform work. We do policy work. Our flagship program. We do leadership development training to elevate people that have been impacted by the system to do advocacy work around uh, policy work in their own communities to advocate for better conditions. And so we currently have trained, since 2015, we've trained 1,300 people in 45 states plus Washington, D.C. So we, we have a heck, heck of a network. Wow. We do a lot of work. We do policy work in D.C. We do trainings all over the country. And it's, it's just a, a plethora of things that we do. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. And it's Excuse me. It's, it's positive work. It's powerful work, and it's impactful work. So I'm. It's, you should go to our website and check us out. I, I think it's so cool. And I, I, the other thing that I think is so, I guess the words inspiring, Ronald, is that you could have been the most bitter, uh, angry man, and and really just balled up in a fetal position and been mad at the world. You did exactly the opposite of that. You decided you were going to step through this, being wrongly accused, decided you were going to start helping people. And 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 now you've continued that work on the outside and and it, it spews out of you. I mean, you you every time I talk to you, you are a very positive man. And it just I guess it kind of shows you that, you know, if you're wired a certain way and your mindset's a certain way, uh, you just can't beat that out of you. No, I mean, what good is negativity? Negativity doesn't nobody any good. I mean, doesn't you know you any good? Doesn't do community yeah. any good? Everybody around you make everybody around you miserable. <laughs> I don't like misery. I mean, I love to be joyous. I like to be you know happy. So I try to I try to approach my life in that manner. It's like, yeah, I could have been bitter. I could have been yeah. angry. Like. And when I got out, Michigan, I didn't, I didn't get compensated. People think I got a lot of money when I got out. Michigan to have compensation laws. And I helped lead a campaign when I got out. People now get $50,000 a year for wrongful convictions in Michigan. But it wasn't retroactive, so I didn't get it, mm-hmm. which is fine. I'm like, open up the door. I, you let me out, I'll make my own money. <laughs> and you have. So, I mean, you just have to be positive in life. And things, positive things will come to you. So looking at, at your situation and everything that's happened, Ronald, I mean, it's it's been a journey of everything that you've walked through. What do you think is your biggest takeaway from all that you've been through that you'd tell somebody else about how this impacted your life and what you would tell them? I think for me, I mean, well, I, I kind of live by the premise of I, that the work that I do and everything I try to do, I, I frame it in the concept of trying to put the humanity back into being human. Like we've gotten that. away from being here. We, we, we treat each other like crap. I mean, we, as humans, it's like we do the most horrific, horrific things to each other. So I want to be, I try to be the change that I want to see. So um, I work from the premise of let's put the humanity back in being human. 
So everything I do is from that perspective. I work through that lens. Everything that I do, I try to put humanity back in being human. I like that. And you, and you, like you said, you're living the life of what you want to see as a change. And that's, that's where you start from because people respond Absolutely. to that. Yes, sir. That's good stuff, Ronald. What haven't I asked you that you want to share? <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing I can think of at the moment. I, I got to jump to another call. I'm, I'm supposed to be on, 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 a, on, a, on a call, on a, meet, on a staff meeting right now. I just, I just text my presence. Hey, I'll join you in just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in the good stuff right here. Hey, so. Yeah. Well, Ronald, I appreciate and, and I want to I want to thank Chantel Fisher, who uh, connected us, who was a person yeah. who's, who's doing great work. And she's uh, uh, she connected me to Ronald. So I really appreciate that, Chantel, out there. Um, yes. Yeah. I met Chantel through one of our training programs, one of my two day training programs. She participated in tw- back in 2015. That's great. What a small world. Yeah. What a small world. Yeah. Ronald, you're doing great things. Uh, wrapping up, uh, for anybody who's looking for a book out there, I've got one. I wrote one called Nightmare Success. Uh, love the likes on social media, the comments. Uh, on Spotify, if you want to subscribe, just hit that little uh, bell button on uh, Apple. Go to those little three things in the side upper corner and hit follow show. Leave me a message on brentcassie.com. As I used to say when I was riding from prison, Stay strong, and I'll do the same. Ronald, thank you, my man. Good stuff. Thank you. Nightmare success. In and out. Thanks for being here today.